Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Abel Kemmeling, Managing Director of ESG and Responsible Investing at MJ Hudson. Abel advises fund managers and companies on how to establish, execute, and measure long-term environmental, social, and governance programs, or ESG. Now, before meeting Abel, a mutual connection at his firm described him as a pioneer, the kind of leader who was doing ESG work before it was cool. Call it whatever you like, but ESG has become a hot topic for fund managers and the companies seeking their investment. The amount of capital now seeking sustainable growth through sustainable investments is absolutely staggering. And that means that ESG has grown beyond just a thematic niche for private equity managers. As we discuss, having an ESG program in your company can become a very valuable long-term advantage for not only attracting capital, but also attracting top talent, de-risking the business, and also doing better for the planet. For any management team interested in developing or fortifying their ESG programs, I highly encourage you to listen to Abel's guidance. He makes the point that ESG can reduce the cost of capital for a company because you're leading by example. In Abel's terms, you pay for the behavior and the market will reward those who are behaving better than the rest. So I encourage you to listen and enjoy the show. On the line, I have Abel Kemmeling, who's the Managing Director of ESG and Responsible Investing with MJ Hudson. Thank you so much for making the time. Yes, well, thanks for having me. We were connected through a previous interview that I did with another guest, and that individual framed you up in your experience as an, uh, an expert in ESG, and you've been doing this since before it was cool, as, as was explained to me. It's become increasingly important in the world of investing and in the world of corporate responsibility. What I'd like to do is hand it over to you, perhaps, to set the foundation for our conversation with some of your background and your experience. So if you don't mind, I'll hand it over to you for a brief on yourself. Yeah, well, it's good to hear that some people uh, believe that ESG is cool. That is, is interesting. I think we've always felt it was even more than 10 years ago when we started this my background is that I come from, let's say, an Anglo-Saxon consultancy uh, firm where I started my career in 1993 after I did get a degree in philosophy. So I'm more or less from the traditional consulting side. And we started our own business about a little over 15 years ago. And our biggest challenge actually at that point, and that's still the same for consultancy firms, was to attract the right talent and get the right people on board. We felt we wanted to offer what the young people wanted to do. 
everyone then was very excited about the energy transition and sustainability in general. So that is basically what we did because in a way for us, it was a talent strategy. It was the strategy to attract the right people. And that went very well because we could compete against, let's say, the Goldman Sachs and the Shells and the McKinsey's because we were a little bit more edgy with regard to, let's say, our ethics and also because uh, with regard to the, the project we got for that reason. And that turned out to be a very good decision. Then basically, we always had as our clientele investors, family offices, private equity firms, banks uh, that were very active in the energy transition and in clean tech, because in the beginning of, let's say, ESG, it was very much seen as a thematic field in investment around uh, energy transition, etc. So our core competency at that point was that we will, would always help investors pick the right investments, both a little bit technical, but more commercial, so to speak. So what is the potential of a certain technology? How far will a certain technology go in, let's say, gearless windmills or something like that? Or what's the future of LED, etc.? So we built an expertise there and we supported uh, many, many firms in making the investments there. And then, of course, 2008 came and overnight the clean tech market collapsed. But we still had an awful lot of knowledge around energy transition, but also in, from a broader sense, what sustainability means in certain industries. And then we, let's say, philosophically moved a little bit further and say, what is sustainability in the broad sense? So we touched upon issues uh, such as a circular economy, which is one of my favorite topics, and also food sustainability, what's the future of food, etc. And we broadened that concept and we decided to bring it to our client, the clientele we already had, the investor markets. And that is basically how we got started. That is how we rolled into, let's say, ESG. I took a number of notes there, just thinking of how you got to where you are now. And now within the world of ESG, perhaps we can give a definition to that of how you see this and how you apply this, especially for your clients being family offices, private equity funds and investment firms. And then also perhaps we can expand on that into what issuers do. But ESG is no longer thematic. It is now in a very important aspect of investing. How do you apply this or how are you applying this for your clients? ESG, in a way, some people might think it's cool, but ESG is still a little bit of a boring acronym, right? ESG mm. sounds a bit like something bureaucratic. The way we think about it is, what is a sustainable future we all want, not necessarily just as investors or as consumers, but as citizens? And so for us, we define sustainability in a broader sense as the potential of a certain society to live and produce and consume, etc., and have an economy within the boundaries of the regenerative capacity of the earth. That is dimension number one. So the earth is a natural system and a natural systems, it's just like a human being. You can become ill and you can get better again unless you become too ill and then you die. That's the same with the natural system we all live in. If you push it over the boundaries, at some point it will stop to support us. 
there are clear indications that we are pushing it to the boundary or over certain boundaries and that we sort of have to find those boundaries and redefine that, what we can do meaningfully within them. That's dimension number one. That's essentially the E dimension. Then dimension number two is the S, uh, is basically how do we distribute the, the wealth of the world or the natural resources in an equitable way? And that is not just a question of ethics. It's also a question of economics economics and also of, well, let's say safety, because if we challenge the rights of other societies or consumers from other sides of the globe and their entitlements to the wealth and the resources the world has to offer, if we, for instance, are of the opinion that you and I can have a hardwood floor in our kitchen, but the average Chinese citizen can't then we don't just have a distribution problem, then we have a global conflict problem. The S is very much about, it's like Pareto always said, you know, it's still 80-20, it's even more like 10-90. So all the natural resources in the world go to certain parts of the world or continents or Northwestern Europe or Europe as a whole. North America, between us, so to speak, we consume pretty much 80 to 90% of everything that's being consumed in the world. And if you take into account that that 80% is already more than what the world can sustain over time, then you know there's something that needs to be done. That is sort of the whole boundary thing, you know? So we like to think outside in. And then the question is, what does that mean? What does that mean to a business? Is that relevant or not? What then actually is so relevant? So if you, for instance, take a certain business, uh, maybe you have an example of a client you had in your call or, or in, your, in your podcast, or if you give me an average business, then the first question I would ask, how can we make sure that the strategy of this particular business is aligned with the future we all want? And if someone can convince me that the strategy of his company is aligned with the future I want as a citizen, and it's also providing me value today, then I know it's a good company. Hmm. And that is also why ESG is a value driver. That's definitely where I want to go. And because your clients being family offices and private equity funds, I would argue would look at things in a very objective manner of show me the numbers. But Obviously, through the success you've had and through the caliber of clients you work with, they're embracing your work and your views on the ESG work and adopting and putting together bona fide programs for their both their investments and themselves. So there's something there and I'm looking forward to get into that. I do realize though, I, I just interjected before you spoke on the governance piece. So maybe you want to continue there. The governance is sort of the least exciting from a, let's say, philosophical perspective. On the other hand, from a value perspective, it's probably the most important one because uh, being a good company typically means uh, being a well-run company and having, let's say, the processes and procedures and systems in place to make sure that you manage the risk you're actually engaging yourself with. So in that sense, if you look at it at the midterm value impact of a certain company, the G is always number one. Because if a company has a G problem, so to speak, if we look at a company in due diligence when someone buys it or something like that, if there's something really wrong in the G, that will hit the value of that company very quickly. It is relevant. On the other hand, it's not so difficult 
OSS because it's easy to make the translation. And what I mean with that, that sounds a bit cryptic maybe, but what I mean with that is that the quality of the governance I can find within the company. So if I talk to the people and if I look at the documents and if I see how they vote and if I see what bylaws they have, etc., and how their board functions, etc., so I can make a judgment as to the quality of the G. The E is a different method because the E always depends on the context. I cannot see from a particular piece of wood if you can have it or not. It depends on what other people do, whether or not it's too much uh, in terms of consumption, or it depends on where it comes from. It depends on how it's harvested. It depends on how the forest, uh, where you got it from, gets managed. So the E is always something, the value of it and the judgment you attach to it always have to come from somewhere else. And that is why E is much more complicated in terms of, let's say, your judgment. How are your clients putting these programs into play? Being your private equity clients, as an example, how are they embracing an ESG program? And then, as we discussed, you know, many people, I think, they don't understand or they struggle with what it means to be good at ESG. How are your clients putting it together and how are they measuring themselves and seeing if they're good or not? That's an important question because it very often starts with the conception of what it means to be good and very often companies don't have it. What it means to be good depends on where you are in the food chain. So if you are, let's say, an issuer or if you are a company or listed or unlisted or if essentially being good at ESG means that just what I said in the beginning, that you have a strategy where over time you get alignment with the future your stakeholders want. And that is a value driver. That is a matter of, let's say, managing the risk you're exposed to. So for instance, suppose you are a company and you manufacture, uh, I don't know, cans. And then basically uh, the first question is, will people still use cans in 10 years time? Is that a sustainable way of consuming given what materials we use, etc.? Well, let's assume it is because if you make them from recyclable material, then the question is, of course, how do you make them? So you have a what question and a how question. And then the question of how you make them, you use a lot of energy, for instance, and suppose you could switch that energy completely to renewables then that would be an interesting strategy for the company. And if they would do that, they would just have managed the risk they are exposed to in an industry like their own. So that is what it means to be good. For a company, what it means to be good, it means that you make actual progress on where the industry needs to go and that you're leading or fast following the trend of where the industry is moving. That is what it means to be good, making actual progress. And then you have some sort of secondary things such as, do you have a certain quality process to make sure that you pick the right topics? Do you have the transparency that basically shows what you have done, why you've done it, so that your governance also works from a board level or from a shareholder level, etc.? so that you can move up the chain and still show what you've been doing and why. So those are basically the three elements for a company. Higher than that, you have, let's say, direct investors. You have, you have investors, be it private or public, doesn't matter. They immediately invest into companies. For them, it's different because for them, they are not 
the managers of the company and they don't want to be because you should also respect the governance structure there is. But that's very key in ESG that you do not try to be on the seat of management. Some pension funds or endowments sometimes tend to forget that, that they would like to be managers, but they're not. I mean, they are investors. So if you're a direct investor, then the rule of thumb is that 80 to 85% of all the risk you're uh, getting yourself into, you can manage during the holding period. You can manage it out of the company, particularly if you're in private equity, because then the holding period is typically a bit longer. And so direct investor is very different in terms of how liquid your investment is. If it's very liquid, if you just invest in listed stuff and you can easily sell it, then if you see something you don't like, you just sell it again. That's easy. So the key for a direct investor in, let's say, listed equities is just having a really good view on where the investments he makes are basically touching the issues he finds relevant or his investors find relevant. So it is about creating transparency, which very often it sounds easy, but it's not so easy. For instance, if you have an endowment fund, then they have direct investments in listed companies in the US or in Canada. And someone behind the endowment says, okay, we had a meeting with the board, uh, the sustainability board of the endowment, and we really don't want any issues that have to do with animal rights on our books. Can you make sure that happens? That's difficult because you don't have a record of that. Hmm. And you could sort of guess that if you buy yourself into a cosmetics company, you may have an issue. And probably if you buy yourself into textiles, you don't. But you don't know because no one makes a record of that. And being an indirect or direct investor into liquid assets basically very often means you need to have a certain data transparency, which goes beyond what you already have. You have the financial data, you have the strategies, etc., but you need a little bit more. Then if you are a direct investor in, let's say, private equity, then it becomes very different because then you typically have a company in your fund for five years, six years, seven years, maybe even 10 years. That gives you more than enough time. So for instance, the example I gave you of the CAN company, changing your energy or carbon footprint, you can do in a, within a couple of years. It's not something you can do within months, but you can do it within two, three, four years. And then basically your carbon emissions from, let's say, uh, power procurement or from your own power sources, you can definitely reduce them by a lot. And very often that is what you see in private equity is that many cases where you believe, well, this is not great, we should change this, that you can change it. So being good at ESG for a direct investor essentially means, again, moving the needle on the things that matter, but he cannot do it himself. He can just support the company to move that needle. So what he needs to support is uh, that the companies he owns basically use the right logic and structure to think about why for one carbon emissions might be relevant, why for others uh, maybe the animal rights are more relevant. Again, if you're an indirect investor and you invest into private equity funds, then it's even more difficult because then you invest into managers that invest into companies. And then ESG essentially is all about management appraisal. It's all about how good is this manager? How good is this private equity firm? Or how good is this firm in really looking at the industry in a strategic way 
and uh, trying to assess what's relevant and what is not relevant, being selective and having the processes in place to really change if it's needed. So a bit of a stacked answer, really <laughs> depending on how liquid the asset class is and how close you are to the business. The closer you are, the more ESG is a management issue, the more indirect you are, the more it becomes a selection issue. Do you want to buy something? Yes or no? What I'm thinking here, and bear with me as I unpack my thoughts on this, but what I understand and what I see is that over the last, let's say, 10 years, there's been more and more push towards sustainable investing. And that's even coming from right down to the retail investor who buys a mutual fund. And that mutual fund folds into a larger organization, which controls a lot of capital. But there's that pressure even from the individual level to see more ESG in our societies. And with that, companies who have embraced an ESG strategy, and I really want to unpack what it would mean for an issuer, for a public or a private company to embrace solid ESG, but it can give them a solid leg up. A strategic advantage is what I'm hearing. One, perhaps from hiring, as we touched on when you first started your company before being acquired, and able to attract great talent. It gave you an edge. And the second is risk mitigation. And the third that I'm thinking about is the cost of capital in the sense that if you're able to, as a company, put together an ESG strategy, which you can communicate to potential investors, all things being equal to comparable investments, that would be another leg up that you would have and potentially even with the ability to attract capital at superior terms or superior rates than if you didn't bother with any of this. Is that true? And have you seen examples where that happens? It's completely true. And I have seen examples where it happens. We've been involved with a couple of companies that actually made that happen. Cost of capital is always a difficult thing because capital comes at a certain cost, but capital also has a certain behavior. Mm. (laughs) And you pay for the behavior, right? So in a sense, you have capital that is... If you are the CEO of a company and basically 80% of your free float is owned by a hedge fund, you have a problem. Because you are basically at their mercy. And many mid-market firms know this, that if they don't have a really clear story, they do not attract the long-term investors. And the long-term investors show completely different behavior. Whether or not that is higher or lower cost of capital is a little bit beyond my league, I must say. And my guess is it's very hard to tell. It means a big difference for the company. Probably the cost of capital is lower because it opens up. I would think of it in terms of investment clientels, right? If you are the endowment of a certain family or of a certain university that has a very strong ESG charter, you just will not invest into certain companies. You have to look harder for certain companies, particularly if you look at, let's say, the mid-market is very interesting because uh, very often the companies in there are lacking the resources and maybe a little bit the professionality in their investor relations, so to speak. So they always tell the financial story, which is not necessarily the story everyone wants to hear. I can give you an example. There was a chemicals company from the U.S., And it was a spin out of an oil major. And they had an interesting process, but it was old school and it was 
what we sometimes call chemical violence. So it was basically, you needed a lot of power and a lot of pressure and a lot of, to sort of make some a process happen. So it was, from an environmental perspective, it wasn't great. They merged or bought another company that had a completely different profile because they were also from the chemicals business, but from the adhesives business where they used lots of natural materials. The whole ESG thing came a lot more natural to them as well because they were already in that industry and they had a significant position in Northern Europe where, as you may know, in the Nordic countries, there's a fairly strong sense of sustainability across the investment community as well. Basically, what we did with them is we tried to connect the, let's say, sustainability challenge to the equity story of the company. So the company needed to do a certain reintegration or integration, post-merger integration. There were certain things they needed to do basically as the equity story to the markets, also to prove why they had done that particular investment and how they were going to monetize it. And basically we had to weave the ESG strategy into that equity story. And I think that worked very well. And I think it resonated very well with certain types of investors. Because in the end of the day, it basically shows that you're more future-proof. That's essentially what it does. Because you think about the long-term future of the industry, your role in that, and how to translate that back in a couple of steps from, let's say, 10 years in the future to five years in the future to next year. What do I need to do next year to make sure I stay on track of my long-term vision? If you are capable of explaining that well, uh, investors tend to like that. That's an interesting one. What I'm hearing and what I'm learning from this conversation is that it's very much a framework in how to vision your company and then also how to communicate that, both to investors and I would imagine to other stakeholders in the company. And, and with that, you would have the benefit of ideally being able to look longer out than next quarter and make decisions which are going to have far more beneficial impacts than just the bottom line. Something that I have a challenge with, and I'm wondering if you can help me wrap my head around this, is is the push for more sustainable investing and, and longer term thinking a luxury that we have in the West? Or is this becoming a global movement for developing countries as well? What are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. And there's a lot of pardon my French, but there's a lot of bullshit around. So, of course, you have to make sure that the story is more than just a bit of veneer on a company. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. Maybe I'm a little bit critical, but that it just serves to sort of make the point. If you look at a company that was praised for its sustainability strategy, Unilever, I have a big problem understanding how the sustainability strategy of Unilever really can be seen as a value driver for the company. And I understand that they were committed and they were trying hard, but in the end, they didn't have any strategy that made any sense. And I think that the markets are not stupid. So the markets may not have learned what ESG means, but the markets can see whether or not they like a story from a financial perspective. And they didn't like this story. It was incoherent. Didn't stand up. Because, well, there were all kinds of inconsistencies there. It's very difficult if you have a conglomerate strategy to find a unifying theme or umbrella or something like that. 
And the only thing they found was double the business with half the impact. Well, that's not really a vision, right? And then you have to translate that to detergents in China versus ice cream in the U.S., very, very difficult to wrap your head around what that really means. You have to be very careful that you do not detach yourself from the daily business because then it doesn't work anymore. And I think that the market is rightly critical of certain initiatives like that. On the other hand, there are perfect examples of companies that have done really well. Look at Patagonia. I mean, it's the easy bit, Mm -hmm. right? But look at Interface. They've done a fantastic job in changing the industry. It has never hurt their business. It has made them more dominant. I'm sorry, who is Interface? I'm sorry. Interface is a floor covering business, textiles. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. They basically were one of the sustainability leaders. And they were not the only one. There were more, particularly also in that industry. But they had a vision of where to go. But they could also translate it to the business proposition they had and just make it into a completely new business. Because... If you have, uh, let's say, a fully circular business model, not only business model, but also product model in a certain industry, the whole industry changes. Because if you sell me, let's say, a cradle-to-cradle carpet, I can give it back to you in 10 years' time, and you can reuse it and refurbish it or take the chemicals out and reuse them again. You get a take-back business model, which is very interesting because Mm -hmm. I'm coming back to you. It's almost like taking physical products and putting them on a subscription program. That's exactly what it is. You don't even have to do that because the client comes back to you. And and in the construction markets or in the, let's say, the interior decorating markets, you see lots of companies that already have made that turn. If you want to be successful in the furniture business without having, let's say, a sustainability model, you're toast. I mean, there's no way that you can sell anything anymore. Look at IKEA. IKEA have to do this. And they are. And the strategy of IKEA, that does stack up. It does make a lot of sense because they know what they're doing and they know what material flows they're taking, how they convert it to something valuable and how, let's say, the lifetime of those products either has to be extended or they have to take it back and recycle it. And if they can, they have to do that within their own supply chain. And that's a good business. There are many examples of how this drives value also just from the operations perspective. But coming back to your earlier point of, let's say, the financing markets, the markets would like to see future-proof businesses. Well, look at the crisis we're in now. Certain businesses, you know, this is never going to end. If you make Beyond Burgers, why would that decline in the, in the years to come? I don't think it will. Yeah, we're not all of a sudden just going to extinguish our consumption of those, especially in in light of a growing population. So in the end of the day, in many cases, it's just about growth potential, right? When we do an industry analysis of a certain industry, the key question we always ask, does this industry have a license to grow? Interesting, yeah. If my kids were to decide, would this industry grow? Would it still be there in 20 years' time? There's a lot of different paths we can go here. But I do want to ask something that I think would be applicable to the audience, and that is, is there a dominant global measurement standards organization for ESG work? Something that CEOs or fund managers can compare themselves against or compare their investments against? And what comes to mind would be an example of lead for clean buildings. But 
What about in the world of ESG? Yes and no. I want to say three things about it. First is ESG is not an outcome. ESG is a process. So it's like a US GAAP. A GAAP is a standard, but it's a standard sort of you have to use yourself. It doesn't give you the numbers. <laughs> it just tells you how to calculate a cash flow, right? And that's the same with ESG. It's a process standard. So are there standards out there? Certainly. The industry standards will like lead or bream you don't have, but you do have accounting standards and looking at the North American market where probably most of your audience are from. The emerging standard would, in my view, be SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASB. They are actually writing the book on how to report on ESG. That is the most relevant standard if you are an issuer of financial or equities or something like that. Then you have more platforms where knowledge is shared, etc. And then it really depends. If you look at the investment community, it would certainly be PRI. Uh, the UN endorsed principles for responsible investing. But that is more if you are really from the investment community. But still, that is where, let's say, the book is written on how pension funds, endowments, etc., are trying to make the investment world better over time. So those two I would like to mention. And then basically it really depends on what industry you're in. So yeah, indeed, in real estate, it would be Bream or LEED. But in construction, is something different. There you have many, many different standards, also yeah. depending on the country. And I'm not sure it will change. There's one other thing I want to say about that, because you use the word measurement. In a way, this is not a measurement issue. It's interesting to know how you stack up against the market or something like that. But you have to keep in mind that it's very early days. You don't want to know who's best in class in a very bad class. Yeah, it doesn't help. If you say, yeah, well, they're all eight-year-olds and no one can read, but he can read a little bit better than he. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. But I want them to read in two years. That number doesn't give me any prediction as to who will be better over time. So in a way, it's too early to do benchmarking. If you're looking at, well, I'm from the Netherlands, so we look at ice skating, right? So you have the 10 kilometers ice skating. If uh, two minutes into the race, you ask me who will win, I can't tell you. Then maybe I should talk to his trainer or something like that, or I should meet, see more statistics. And the same is true for companies. I'm not interested in their performance today. I'm interested in the plans they have for the performance in the future and how credible these plans are and how credible the teams are in really making that happen. That's what I'm interested in. So if I was to compare two car companies, I don't care who has the highest emissions today. I would like to know who has the platforms and the technology around low-weight cars, EV, maybe even hydrogen, or the technology to make the car smarter, etc. I would like to know how far it will take them in the future of the car industry industry. That's what I would like to know. Measuring that, do I need that? Yes, I do, because it gives me a little bit of a sense of the quality of their process. It also gives me a little bit of the sense of where they stand today or a gap they need to bridge. That gives me a bit of a sense, but it's not so important. And also what you hear a lot is that ESG, there's a big of a data challenge. That's absolute nonsense. There is no data challenge. Every company has the data they need to decide where they want to go. 
It is just a design matter. It's, it's a matter of where do they decide to go over time in 10 years' time, and then it's very easy to find the data you need to, to support sort of the analysis whether you're going in the right direction. That's, that's really not such a challenge. What I'm really just taking from our conversation here is that there's certainly a paradigm shift if you're the CEO or the management team of a company and you're wanting to bring ESG in and, and become something core to the company. That paradigm shift is this is not a quarterly or an annual discussion or planning session. This is something that you're looking out 10, 15, 20, maybe even 50 years and saying, where are we taking our company? What does that look like? And what can we do today to start building towards that vision? It's much more longer term thinking, which sometimes I frankly have a difficult time doing. And I think perhaps even in the West, we have a difficult time doing that. But that's what I'm taking from our conversation. Absolutely. And I think that's a big challenge because the markets are very often a bit more short-term orientated. But in a way, there aren't because the multiples they're paying, well, you need uh, more than 10 years uh, typically uh, to pay back your investment. So in a way, they are already taking a bet on the long-term future. They just are maybe a bit nervous in their trading behavior that they buy, sell, buy, sell on what they think they're seeing in the short run, but they are already investing in the long run. And in a way, you have to do both. So 50 years ahead is not possible. We cannot get our heads around that. So probably 15 years is the maximum we typically work with as an horizon. If you want to have a story you can basically connect to your equity story to the market, you will have to backcast, uh, so to speak, that future outlook and weave it into your plan for next year as well. So mm -hmm. you need a 15-year view, you need a five-year view, maybe two, three, and then a one-year view. You also need a one-year view because the company needs that because companies are basically governed and managed on the basis of annual budgets, quarterly budgets and plans, etc. And they will keep doing that. So you have to translate it back also to the short term because otherwise people get confused. What I hear there, I wish we'd touched on this earlier in our discussion, but what I hear there is that for an issuer, for a public company or even a private company who's going to raising capital, if they were to have a bona fide or legitimate ESG program that is looking 15 years out, that should be part of their discussion, part of their process or part of their pitch. But then being able to say, this is our vision for 10 or 15 years out. And here's what we're doing in the next 12 months to work towards that. And between the combination of the vision and actually what's being executed, that would help serve the purpose of driving the discussion around ESG, especially for potential investors who that's core to their investment philosophy. Is that fair? And perhaps we can wrap up there. Is that fair? Or how can companies do that best to communicate? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that is the key challenge because Many people do have a long-term idea or vision. It's just translating it back to where you are today and what it means, what you're going to do tomorrow. That's the hardest part. And that is very often where, let's say, the frameworks sort of help out because they're basically reducing the number of options you have. So basically, the trick we have or the service we offer is basically how to 
logically narrow down the options you have to say, well, it should be one of these five, otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. That makes it easier to translate a, a back as, let's say, a loftier vision to something actual you can start doing tomorrow. That is essentially what ESG management is all about. And then in a way, what we always say is that the reporting around ESG in a way is nothing more than a byproduct of a good process. Interesting. It starts with the strategy discussion, but the, the, basically the product of that that falls out of that is almost like your ESG report or at least the structure and that you fill in over time. That's the Hmm. easy part. Well, thanks for that. Any final advice and how can the listeners follow your work or reach you should they have questions? I'm not sure how you typically publish that, but I hope you would put my name there and a link there so they can reach out to me if they want to. That's probably the easiest way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We can put your information in the show notes for sure. Any final thoughts for the audience? I would urge pretty much everyone, if they aren't going already, to get going (laughs) and fast. Thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed our preliminary conversation before we got on this call. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience. Very much appreciated. It was an interesting conversation. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.